If you're visiting with us today on Sunday mornings, we're looking at the life and the ministry of Jesus in chronological order, and sometimes that jumps us between all the different Gospels, and I love that. And uh, so between last week and this week, we go from John's Gospel over into Luke, and it's rich everywhere you go in this book. So Luke chapter 10, verse 25. And behold, a certain lawyer stood up and tested Jesus, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit everlasting life? And Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? What is your reading of it? And he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have answered rightly, do this, and you'll live. But he, the lawyer, wanting to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Then Jesus answered and said, A certain man went down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among thieves who stripped him of his clothing, wounded him, and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a certain priest came down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. And likewise a Levite, when he arrived at the place, came and looked and passed by on the other side. But a certain Samaritan, as he journeyed, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And so he went to him and he bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine, set him in his own animal brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And on the next day when he departed, he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper, and said to him, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, when I come again, I'll repay you. So Jesus asked the lawyer, So which of these three do you think was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves? And he said, He who showed mercy on him. And then Jesus said to him, Go and do Likewise, let's pray together. Thank you for your word, Lord. Thank you that we need never turn to it alone, but can always, Lord, seek you, the author, to open it up to us. We acknowledge, Lord, that there are thoughts and intents behind this passage, reasons why it is in your book, and, Lord, we want every reason for every passage in your book to find a living place in our daily relationship with you. And so we ask for a personal work of your Holy Spirit in our lives through this passage by your Holy Spirit this morning. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. In this passage, we have recorded one of Jesus' most famous teaching, a teaching known as the parable of the Good Samaritan. And it's interesting to note, I think, that Jesus didn't just stand up on a street corner, maybe in the area of the temple, and initiate this teaching on his own. He gives this teaching in response to a question that has been asked of him, by a man who is identified to us, not by name, but by his position in society. He is a lawyer. Now, in those days, and when you read the Bible and you read about a lawyer, a Jewish lawyer here in the Scriptures, 
It's talking about an expert in the law, a lawyer, but these lawyers were experts in the law of Moses. In our secular society, we have lawyers, and they are also experts, but they are experts in criminal law. They are experts in corporate law or uh, civil law or family law. And uh, so in the same way that our lawyers are expert in some uh, field of, of expertise, these lawyers were experts in the law of Moses. This man uh, that identified as a lawyer here would be a person who is, um, uh, has been given the time, has been given the resources uh, by his family or by his community to be able to commit his whole life, invest his whole life into the study of the Old Testament. Most of us have to, you know, we're learning the Bible as we can grab an hour here, an hour there, 15 minutes here, four hours there. This guy gets to give his whole life to the study of, of the Jewish law in order that he might know not only what it says, but so that any Jewish person could then come to him with a problem and say, in the light of your knowledge of the law of Moses, here's our situation. What does God's law say to us to do. This guy is a very, very sharp human being. Uh, Jews in general are a pretty sharp group of people in terms of planet Earth. You deal with them as a whole group of people. This is a man who hasn't appointed himself to this position. This is a man where some group of people have looked at him and said, this guy has an extraordinary mind, he has an extraordinary gift in this direction. We are going to free him up to be able to give his life to the study of the law in a way that not everybody else had the ability to do. And they allowed that privilege and, they, uh, and responsibility, not just to anyone and everyone, but really the, only to their best minds. Now the question that he asks Jesus is really an outstanding one. And the question that he asks is, uh, is simple, at least in in the question itself, he says, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, that's a great question. Whatever we may think of him the rest of the way, and we shouldn't think of ourselves as better than him, but you've got to give this guy credit for asking the right question. Here he has, put yourself in his place, he has access to Jesus. He can ask Jesus any question he once. And this is the question that he asked. It's a great question. He didn't ask Jesus some pop culture question, what he thinks of Madonna or Brittany or Brad, you know, uh, Pitt and, and uh, Angela Jolene, uh, any of those kind of things. I, you know, what do you think about these people? The pop culture we're immersed in. I go on my computer. I'm just trying <laughs> to find the headlines to read what new disaster hit planet Earth before I go to sleep, all right? So anyway, you go on and, and they got the pop-ups, the ads on the side of all these sites and everything. And there's a big set of lips right there. Whose lips are these? 
Angela Jolene, Madonna, you know, Brittany, and everyone knows those are Angela's lips. On the, I mean, you can't go obsessed by these things. He doesn't ask any questions about, you know, current events in the nation. What does Jesus think about the Roman occupation of Israel at the moment? Or what does he think about the condition of the whole wide world? And those can be very important questions. But, I mean, he goes way beyond all of these things. And he asks the biggie, what shall I do uh, to inherit uh, eternal life? Now, when he rises up and he asks that question, uh, it is an important question and actually the most single most important question in life that any person who recognizes that they are destined to one day die can ask. And that's every single one of us in this room. The recognition that one day I will die and I will move into eternity. And I ask myself, in the light of that, how does one attain to everlasting life? What do I have to do in this life in order to go to heaven one day, in order to share in his mind the resurrection of the righteous in that, in that uh, one day? There's hardly a more important question in life than that one. Now, that question that he asks of Jesus, that wasn't a question he was unfamiliar with. That was a question that the lawyers and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and the rabbis debated all of the time, was what do you have to do in order to inherit everlasting life? And he's curious about what, what, uh, where Jesus will kind of uh, weigh in on this great religious debate. And so he asks Jesus the question. You cannot take that question to a, a, a higher authority than Jesus. You can't take it to a better person. And so he does that. Now notice that he is a man that is convinced that eternal life is gained by doing something. What shall I do? And you need to either circle it with a pen or circle it in our minds. But he rec his conclusion or his, the way he looks at it is you get to heaven on the basis of doing something. Now, that it's, we get to heaven on the basis of some human effort on our part. Literally, he is saying, by doing what shall I inherit eternal life? In his mind, it's a given. You get to heaven by, on the basis of how good you are or how many good things that you do. His only question is, that's assumed. His only question is, how much good do you need, how much wood would, how much good do you do and do you need to do in order to get into heaven? Now, that, that perspective is an interesting one to us, uh, because most of the world today, uh, thinks the same thing, that a person has access, one day has everlasting life in heaven on the basis of some amount of being good or doing good in, in the course of, of their life. And so here is a man, faces the problem that every person faces, who believes that you're going to get into heaven on the basis of good deeds rather than through faith in Christ. And the problem that that person faces is... How many good deeds do I need to do to live this life confident that I will one day land in heaven? Because no one would want to do so many good deeds and then find out in eternity they missed it by a foot 
or buy a yard. So he wants to have the security of everlasting life, but, and, and the only way he can have that is to know how much he needs, needs to do. And, and that's the problem with, with salvation based upon, you know, works, is you never know how much you're going to do and whether you've done enough or you're going to die just short of that. I think it's also important to notice that this man asks this question of Jesus in order to test him, we're told. Uh, the word test is, it could equally be translated to trap Jesus or uh, in order to tempt Jesus. The word carries the same meaning. So here we have a case of a man who is asking a very good question out of a very bad motive. But it's still, it's still a good question. He's attempting to publicly trap Jesus and to expose Jesus here. He stands up, he asks Jesus this question publicly, and he's hoping that whatever answer Jesus gives him, because there were a lot of opinions on how to get to heaven, even among the Jews in those days, and so he's hoping that whatever Jesus says, Jesus is wildly popular among the common people, that no matter what answer he gives, he will in some way alienate a part of his following. And so this is what the, the fellow is, is, is up to here. Now, notice Jesus' interaction with the man there in verse 26. And what Jesus does is he answers the man's question with two questions of his own. And this was a common way to deal with something. Uh, sometimes, you know, if pe when people a ask me a question so often, I, I'm moving, you know, maybe too fast half the time, and I'll just give them the, the answer that, you know, I know to be true or believe to be true on that. Uh, Jesus was a lot more conservative. A lot of times, especially with dishonest questions, or at least murky kind of questions in terms of motives, very often he would respond with a question. Now, if someone comes to you and asks you a question, and you give them the answer, that answer will go into their memory banks to a certain depth. But if you ask them a question that then allows them to come up with the answer on their own, they'll carry that answer for the rest of their life. That'll go deeper than anything else. So Jesus asked this man two questions. He said, What's written in the law? And number two, what is your reading of it? And what Jesus is doing here is he's directing this lawyer back to the Bible for his answer. He's saying whatever the Bible's answer is on that issue, that's my answer too. And so Jesus doesn't ask this lawyer, now listen, that's a pretty big question out there, and could you tell me what the prevailing views are out there among the Jewish religious leaders, and what are the philosophers saying, and historically, can you tell me what are the main arguments related to, uh, how, you know, uh, how does a person earn everlasting life, and uh, because I need that kind of insight. Jesus doesn't ask him any of those things, because none of those things matter. They don't matter to Jesus. They don't matter to us today. Jesus just simply asked the man to explain to him, what do you think the Bible says about that question? How do you see the Word of God? We see Jesus' very, very high view of Scripture in this. Well, the man's answer is immediate, verse 27. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And, number two, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This guy's good. There's no hemming, no hawing. Give me five minutes, I'll catch you tomorrow. None of this. Boom! From memory. Pow! 
Brings these commands straight out. He's got an answer. He thought this thing through. And so he lays, quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, and then Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18. That's his response. And then notice Jesus' response to his response. Verse 28, you have answered rightly. Do this and you'll live. Translation, gold star for this man. Get somebody get a gold star for this man. Bingo. Home run. Bullseye. Perfecto. That is the answer. There is no better answer in the entirety of the Old Testament. If you're going to figure that you're going to get to heaven on the basis of doing, then the answer that you have given me. All right. If you insist on getting into heaven on the basis of works, just obey those two commandments and you're in. That's what Jesus is saying. If you're going to get into heaven on the basis of your works, then that's the way that it has to be done. All that's required is to love God with all of your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all of your strength, from your first breath to your final breath. Then to love your neighbor just as fully and as zealously and selfishly, so to speak, as we love ourselves, to love our fellow human being just as fully as we love ourselves from our first breath in life to our final breath in life. And if we do those two things, boom, you are in heaven on the basis of, of works. In other words, Jesus is saying, if you're intent upon getting into heaven by doing, then you have to have been absolutely perfect all of your life. Flawlessly perfect in your conduct and in your relationship with God. Flawlessly perfect in your relationship with your fellow man. Never slipping up, never sinning, never falling short, not once, not in word, not in deed, not in motive, not in thought. Jesus said, you find anyone that's done that, they're in. The problem is, there are none of those people around. Jesus is the only person who's ever done that. And so, none of us can get into heaven that way. Jesus was saying, what's required if you're going to get into heaven on the basis of works is perfection. That's why God has not chosen to save us on the basis of works, but to save us on the basis of faith in Christ. Because when we put our trust in Jesus as our Savior, some, it's the greatest miracle in the universe occurs. God Almighty takes the perfect righteousness of Jesus, the perfect rightness, the perfect right-onness of Jesus, and the Bible says imputes it to us, puts it to our account. So for the rest of my life and my eternity, when He looks at me, He does not see my righteousness, which is unrighteousness. He sees the perfect righteousness of Christ. That's the only way you get people like me into heaven. And you're no different. You see any smugness out there? Nobody's face. Now, don't think that this guy doesn't get what Jesus is saying. He gets it. You notice in verse 29. He wants to justify himself, so he said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? As Jesus' answer sinks in to this man's mind, again, he's, he's, a sharp, he's a sharp guy, he realizes 
this whole trap that he set for Jesus has been turned around on him. He realizes that the big lawyer is being outlawed by Jesus. He's lost ground. He intended to show Jesus up publicly. Now Jesus has him on trial and he's being shown up publicly. Though Jesus' motive is love and concern uh, for him. Why else, in verse 29, would this man feel the need to justify himself except that now he has this strange uh, feeling that he is on the wrong side of this conversation and, on, uh, uh, and, and that he's the one that's on trial. He knows that he hasn't lived that kind of life. He knows that no one has ever lived a perfect life except the one he's trying to trap except the Jesus that stands right in front of him at the moment. And so he tries to justify himself by doing what lawyers and, and defendants of all sorts are prone to do when they're trapped, and that is he tries to get out of the trial or get a mistrial here on the basis of a technicality. And the technicality that he raises to Jesus here is, would you please define neighbor to me? I mean, it's a court of law. Would counsel please define neighbor? That's what he does here. It's important to realize also, I think, that the Jewish religious leaders in Jesus' day had very differing opinions about who the Jews considered neighbors. Who that command of Leviticus chapter 19, that they were to love their neighbors as their self, who that command applied to. There wasn't a uniform opinion on the part of Jewish leaders. There were many Jewish leaders and rabbis who believed that what God was saying there in the command that they were to love their neighbors, their self, that that neighbor included Jew and Gentile alike. That the Jews were to love their neighbor, whether it was Jew or Gentile, that was the application. But there was another very significant group of Jewish religious leaders and their followers who looked at Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, and said, ah, 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 if you look carefully at the context of that verse, and they were good at this, they would say, God is clearly applying that Jew on Jew. That is a commandment that He is making to Jews about Jews. So, we are compelled by God's law to love our neighbor as ourself, but our neighbor is only Jews. We do not have to apply that to our relationship with non-Jews, that is Gentiles, and we certainly don't have to apply it to the dreaded, hated Samaritans. The problem with that position, I love this, I hope I'm not killing you with it. The problem with that is you just go down a few more verses in Leviticus chapter 19 and God makes it very clear that it applies to Jews and Gentiles because in verse 34 it says, But the stranger who dwells among you shall be to you as one born among you, and you shall love him as yourselves, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. And so they were. that was to apply... To every human being, that was the, the, uh, how, how that command applied. And so he's asking Jesus, Jesus, there's a lot of debate that's going on here on all these things and there's different camps and everything. So he wants to know where Jesus stands on the issue. And so this kind of thing is just characteristic of 
so many religious discussions that I dread and I want to run away from where you get, you know, the, the sometimes spiritual eggheads and they just love to discuss. And the do, discussion is very good over the Word of God, iron sharpening iron, but if it's just discussion for discussion's sake and all of that, you know, just spare me. But, the, but this was what he, he, you know, was his life. This is what he loved to do. And this is what he's trying to do here a little bit with Jesus. Now, Jesus uh, graciously proceeds to answer the man's question. And he answers it with a parable of, of the Good Samaritan. And the parable itself is that a certain man is traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. The road between Jerusalem and Jericho, just about 17 miles. Not a real long distance. You could make that easily in a day. 17 miles, not a straight line. We've got a lot of flat land here in the Central Valley. Get a road, poof, head right there. This 17 miles, it winds, it curves, it's built, it, it walks on a, the floor of a ravine that comes up, it turns corners, there's springs all along the way where brush and trees grow, and you never know who's right around the corner when you would walk that road from Jerusalem to Jericho. It was an ideal place to get mugged. Because you could turn a corner, boom, there they are, and they got you. Uh, and that happened so much on that road that that road ultimately became known as the bloody way. Now, you'd think nobody would travel that road if it had that kind of a crime rate, but, but they needed to. And so there were religious leaders, uh, uh, Pharisees, priests, Levites, who were constantly traveling the road along with everyone else from Jerusalem to Jericho. The priest didn't work, um, you know, uh, 80 hours a week, week in and week out, month in and month out for all of their lives. They would work at the temple in Jerusalem for a block of time. Then they would leave. They might work there for a month, and they would be off the following 11 months. They would be an influence for God and the nation by returning home to their hometowns, that kind of thing. But they wouldn't be in Jerusalem, very few of them, all the time, all their lifetime. And many of the priests and, and Levites, they lived in Jericho. So their term of, of service and work is over. They're off duty. Now they're making their way to Jericho. So there's a lot of this kind of of traffic. You notice that the word mention is made of going, traveling down from Jerusalem uh, into uh, Jericho, and it was quite a downward walk that you'd be involved in because Jerusalem uh, was about 2,600 square feet, still is above sea level, and Jericho about 800 feet below sea level. And so, Making your way down is one of my favorite stops on a trip to Israel is to overlook uh, this, this, uh, this road. So the man is going along, common man, as he's going along, he becomes a victim of thieves, verse 30. So comes around the corner, boom, they've, they've got him. And, and these thieves are especially cruel. You know, it's one thing when somebody rips you off. I mean, that leaves a bad taste in your mouth when you've been ripped off. But these people did, these guys did what nobody needed to do. They took his clothes. Now that was valuable. Most of us have at least a, a change of clothes at home from what we're wearing right now. Some of you may have 60 changes of clothes at home. Well, in those days, to have a change of clothes was a big deal. 
That was valuable. Clothing was valuable. So his clothing represented value. They stripped him of it. Then they did what they did not need to do, and that is they beat him to a pulp. They beat him to half dead. And then they leave him on the side of the road to just die. And if he lives or dies, it doesn't mean anything to us. We've done this and, and we go on our way. Jesus calls him a certain man. Doesn't give us a name. Doesn't tell us whether he's a Jew or a Gentile. He's a certain man. Because he represents anybody and everybody. That kind of event can happen to any of us. Male, female, Jew, Gentile, rich, poor, educated, uneducated, whatever kind of you know, hyphens we want to make for our lives. This kind of stuff can happen to anybody. And that's exactly what happened to him. So he is left by these thieves and he's just a crumpled uh, mass of bloody flesh. He is desperately in need of a neighbor. Desperately in need of someone to take note of him and have compassion on him. Well, Jesus declared, verse 31, that a certain priest was making his way along that road. The priests were the spiritual giants of the day in the minds of, of the children of Israel. They were the descendants of none other than Aaron himself. They oversaw all of the services at the temple, the sacrifices, the whole uh, God, everything for the nation. I mean, if there was anyone that the Jews would say, this is a spiritual person, this is the kind of person you want to have stumble on you when you're in that kind of condition, it would have been a priest. He comes around the corner, he comes down that road, he sees the man lying in a heap on one side of the road, he goes to the other side of the road, uh, road and makes his way onto Jericho. Doesn't get involved. Jesus is telling this story, they've never heard it before. Don't you wish at times... Every time that you read the Bible, it was like for the first time. When they hear Jesus say, a priest came on the scene, the hearers are saying, he's as good as saved. He's as good as saved. That guy's going to be taken care of. I mean, he, what a fortunate man to have a priest come around the corner when he's in that need. The most spiritual people in Israel. And they hear Jesus describe the priest in that way. So, who? okay. Second guy comes on the scene is a Levite, a descendant of the tribe of Levi. These are the people that helped the priest do all the sacrificing and all the service at the, at the temple. It's kind of like today in a local church. The priests would have been like the elders. The Levites would have been like the deacons. They handled all the physical stuff, but they were considered to be deeply, highly spiritual people. So he comes around the corner of things and if that man is, is everybody's listening to the story, they're thinking to themselves, all right, the priest didn't stop, but the Levite's going to stop and he's going to take care of this man. If that man was laying on his side and his eyes are all beat up and he can just barely see through the crack of his swollen eyes, if this man saw a priest or a Levite coming down the road, he would have thought to himself, thank you, Lord. I'm saved. It's a priest. It's a Levite. The Levite comes over, does more than the priest. He investigates. He analyzes the situation. He gets up close. He examines it. He determines the depth of the wounds and the severity of the situation and all. Crosses the street, heads to Jericho. Then there's this 
Next man that Jesus talks about is a certain Samaritan. And the Samaritans were hated by the Jews in those days. The Jews hated the Samaritans. The Samaritans were spiritually, they were uh, ethnically uh, a, a mongrel group to the Jews. They were half-breeds. And, and they just despised the Samaritans. And in fact, when the Bible says that the Jews had no dealings with the Samaritans, when the religious leaders came to Jesus one day and they were uh, confronted by him on a particular issue, when they wanted to insult him, they're men of the cloth, they can't swear. They wanted to insult him in like a, some kind of semi-sanctified way. They said to him, you're a Samaritan. That was like swearing to someone. You couldn't call anybody something lower in the mind of a Jew than to call him a Samaritan. Jesus makes him the hero of the story. That's my Savior. I love him so much. He's just great. And so this Samaritan, Jesus said, he saw him and his response was compassion. And, and for Jesus, again, to make a Samaritan the hero of a story that is being spoken to Jews, very bold on his part, very deliberate on his part. But the man didn't stop with just his feelings. He felt the compassion, but then he went on to do something. You know what's funny about us, if we don't watch out for it? I'll say it about myself and then just simply know it about you. But we have the ability to look at something on television, some horrible thing that happens or something, and it, and it, just, it just tweaks my heart and I get emotional over it and I have compassion over the whole situation that I've seen or what is, something's being described to me or something like that. And I will consider myself to be you know, a deeply compassionate person on the basis of the fact that I can feel such things <laughs> when I'm exposed to such hardship. Is that a truly deeply compassionate person? So that compassion translates into something, and it does in this man. He went to him. He wasn't looking to say, boy, because it looks like there's a path across the street away from this guy. Didn't try to avoid him. Went straight on over to him. Bandaged up his wounds. He poured oil just to soothe the wounds and the wounds. Put alcohol there to cleanse and to sterilize the wounds. Put him up on his animal. Took him to the inn where he was going to be staying. And then took care of him all the way through the evening, all the way through the night. Went down. And this is where it gets really big because this guy didn't just do, you know, give of his time, give of his expertise, give of his emotions to the man. But it reached all the way into his wallet. And he told the guy that was running the inn. He gave the guy two denarii. That was two days wages for a working man. So he gave this guy, it wasn't enough, it wasn't just for that night. That would have covered this guy for several more nights. And he said, if he runs beyond that, take care of him in his rehab. I'll pay you whatever his tab is when I come back. That's what the guy does for him. And then he made his way then down to Jericho. And so the Samaritan, Jesus said, help this man, who in all likelihood uh, probably would have been a Jew. And he did so without any concern for his race. And then notice what Jesus asked the lawyer. Verse 36. So which of these three do you think? Just want your opinion. 
was neighbor to him who fell among the thieves. And the lawyer's response there in verse 37 was, he who showed mercy on him. He could not bring himself to say Samaritan. He couldn't say the Samaritan. Jesus said Samaritan. Jesus made the Samaritan the hero of the story. He couldn't do it. But Jesus takes the answer. Jesus gets it. Notice, I think that it's interesting concerning this man and concerning his answer to Jesus that he does not protest Jesus' assessment of the priests and the Levites. He doesn't say to Jesus, that's the most one-sided, unfair representation of the priests and the Levites. I don't know one in a hundred that would do what you just said that they would do. That's a deliberate, uh, you know, besmirching of their reputation. That's a terrible thing that you've done here. He doesn't defend them at all. Everybody knew how corrupt the priests and the Levites had come, become at the time of Jesus. Doesn't, doesn't defend them in any way. And Jesus has answered to him, and it's the application of the whole thing to the man. He said to him, go and do likewise. And all of this Jesus has defend, defined who is my neighbor to this man? And his definition, Jesus' definition of neighbor is anyone who is near me in need. That's as good a definition as you'll ever get. But from the throne of God and from the mouth of Jesus, neighbor, you want a definition of neighbor? He's basically saying the guy is anyone, Jew, Gentile, male, female, I don't care who they are, anyone that's near you and is in need, that's who you apply that passage to is a child of, of God. I think the passage has something really vital to say to every single one of us in this room who has walked with the Lord for at least five years. And I think that one of the things that can happen to us in our Christian life is that the longer we walk with the Lord, the more we are prone to begin to think that we are spiritual on the basis of what we know rather than the fact that we are spiritual on the basis of how much of what we know translates into daily action in our life. And it's easy. I never, ever, I may have some fun with them, but I never look down on that lawyer or that priest or that Levite. They all live inside of me in spades. I recognize the tendency in my own heart to, apart from the Spirit of God, to devolve into that very same kind of person to enter into a self-deception where I convince myself I am a very spiritual person because I know more about the Bible than I have ever known about the Bible before. 
Nothing wrong with knowing as much about the Bible and as being as great an expert in the Bible as we can be. But if it does not translate into action, then we are living a life far below the life of Christ. And it is the life of Christ that we desire to live in this world. Jesus does not ask this religious leader or he does not ask us in this passage to do anything that he is willing to do himself. And more than that, that he has not already done in every single one of our lives that knows him is a Christian. You think back to the day he found you in a heap. A heap of what? But a heap. I don't mean in that in a bad way, by the way. But maybe not a heap of blood and flesh and beaten to a pulp but in a heap of some kind of bondage or some kind of a mess or some kind of a deal where you are not going to get out of that on your own. And then what did he do? Did he go onto the other side of the street when he saw us? Mm Mm-mm. Did he just come over and examine and analyze and say, let's put a poster right here of don't ever become one of these. Then do that came over to every single one of us, took a good hard look at the project he was inheriting by involving himself in our lives. And he poured the oil of his Holy Spirit on our wounds. And he brought wine, which represents joy in the Scriptures, into our lives. Introduced the joy of his salvation into our lives. And he changed our lives. This is to live a life like Christ. To merely know and not have it translate into actions is to live way below his, his life. And the practical applications can take so many, so many different ways they can take. They can take a couple of bags of groceries to somebody that we know is in needing some groceries at the moment. It wasn't a thing of like, okay, go out and hunt these people down and find a need. You just got to walk through life and it's going to be in front of us. That's the whole deal. Nobody had to go looking for it. It's, it's there. It's a fallen world. Borrow someone's car. Fill the tank up with gas. Give them some margins. Got a younger person or a younger couple working hard, trying to make things happen. An older, older couple, older person, margins are so tight and all. Nobody should be driving that car with those tires. Borrow that car and someone might be able to put four tires on it. Or drive someone to a doctor's office. You don't have to go look out for it or put an ad in the paper or anything like that. It'll come to you. It'll come to me, these different kinds of things. And just these little deals that come and, and they're just right in, in front of us and, and we can come and, and help someone in that immediate situation. And then all these wonderful things that we know in our noggins and we're thankful for all we know in our noggins, but then they get to find expression. And sometimes you look and say, well, boy, all those things involve money and I don't have any money. Where do I sign up for the tires? It doesn't have to be all that kind of a deal. It can be a thing where... You come across someone, you ever come across in life where somebody just starts to talk to you out of the blue? You don't know them from anybody, they just start to talk to you. And I think to myself, how desperate must this person be for conversation, to just start a conversation with me who they don't even know? And they're talking and they're pouring out stuff, and you say, wow, I mean, woo. I mean, they're pouring their heart out to me right now in the middle of it. 
And, and it can be just a thing of saying, all right, I'm going to do what this guy did. This guy doesn't, this person is talking to me. He doesn't need money. He doesn't need a hotel room. He doesn't need anything like that. He just needs someone to listen to him right now because obviously he's got no one to talk to on this situation right now. And listen to him. It's just these little things that can make such a difference. I love this passage because I have as great a tendency as anyone and as great a temptation as anyone is to learn this book and then exclusively live it in my head. And every one of us is at danger of that after we walk with the Lord for a while where I consider myself and my spirituality on the basis of what I know instead of the true mark of spirituality, knowing the Bible well, but then how much of what I know is then translating into the daily of life that God puts in front of me. I love it when God brings this passage to my remembrance because he needs to do it often. So may it be a great friend in each one of our lives. It's sown into our hearts. For some of you, for the 50th time in your Christian life, you could have preached the sermon. For some of us, the first time today. But the main thing is, it's built into our lives, and now we know the true marks of spirituality, true marks of Christ-likeness, and now it's in the hands of the Spirit to then speak to us and say, it's not just knowing, Kyle. It's also about doing Gotcha. Needed to hear that. And it's a good word from the Lord. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Father, we do recognize ourselves in all of these men. We recognize the, the tendency of our own flesh and of our own pride and our own self-deception and thinking to really land in that same place where we could become so hardened that we would walk by astonishing uh, need before us every single day and not even think about becoming involved, even under the leading of your Holy Spirit. And we pray, Lord, you take this passage as we prayed even as we headed into it and that you would use it, Lord, as a part of your Spirit directing us and how you want to use us day in and day out in this fallen and needy world. We really mean it, Father, when we ask and we pray that you would make us more like Jesus. And so we, we want to know what we want to do. And so take this passage, use it to further us, advance us, Lord, in this area of our Christian lives. We trust you for any changes that need to occur in our thinking, our attitudes right now as we stand before you. We trust you, Lord, to use it in our futures for your glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.